This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. My wig on straight? Looks perfect. Thank you. It's hard to get that full head of hair underneath it. Can you tell, like... We banter about Rick's hair quite a bit. I've got I've got this product full, full head of hair underneath <laughs> this bald wig. All right. Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology, and a first daily Mormon history podcast. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to continue our conversation with Rick Turley and Barbara Jones Brown. This time we're going to get into the second trial of John D. Lee and why he was convicted. This is kind of also a surprise, and it's a change to the narrative traditionally told in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. I'll also ask them what Will Bagley would say. You know, Will passed away a year or two ago, and so we don't know how he'd respond, probably not favorably though, uh, to Rick and Barbara's research. We'll also talk about what uh, Juanita Brooks got wrong. So it's a great conversation. You won't want to miss it. Another thing that Janice said that I thought was interesting, I'd like to get your opinions on. Um, In the the 19th century, Hiram and Joseph's killers were acquitted. Um, Nobody was, uh, Parley Pratt's murderer was acquitted. None of the crimes against Mormons were ever prosecuted. Um, she made a point that it was hard to convict a white man. And so convicting John D. Lee was actually kind of a, a new thing. And, and I, my question is, were prosecutors in the 19th century just all incompetent? Or <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it doesn't sound like it was incompetence, in the, especially in the first trial, so much as it was political. So it, it boils down to the sordid underbelly of American extra legal justice, particularly in the period before the Civil War and in the decades afterwards when they're trying to struggle towards protecting the rights of minorities, racial minorities, religious minorities, and others. In the period before you had good civil rights legislation, if you had a majority population in any location that wanted to put pressure on others that they considered to be 'er ne'er-do-wells, they could use extra legal means, vigilante justice, they could murder people, they could rape people, they could hang people, they could they could do all types of evil, and it was very rarely prosecuted because the majority in the area thought that it should be done. So it really was exceptional to see John D. Lee convicted in an America that very rarely convicted people who were guilty of extra-legal violence. 
I mean, I guess I should be it should also be noted that some of the Mormons who were guilty of violence in Missouri weren't convicted either. Right, but the the difference is that in Missouri, as typically happens, the majority population would come down really hard on the minority population that they held to a much higher standard. So when Latter-day Saints did even minor things in Missouri, bad things happened to them. When mobbers— legally, though, not legally. Yes, and sometimes legally. Uh, for example, in, in Jackson County, the Latter-day Saints store owner found a burglar breaking into his store, apprehended that store owner— and rather than prosecute the burglar, they let him off and then accused the store owner of making a false arrest on the burglar. Oh so it did work, you know, both legally and extra legally against minority populations in those days. Okay. Um, another thing that I found interesting from the book, and, and I'm really curious about, um, I know Barbara the first trial, the 1875 trial, lasted two weeks, and it, from what I understand, there were no witnesses against John D. Lee, but John, but William Bishop did put a uh, a defense up, and which he didn't do in the second trial. So there, there were witnesses. There were no witnesses in the first trial who actually saw John D. Lee murder someone. So that was that was a major difference in the second trial. Nephi Johnson, uh, Samuel Knight, um, who was the other wagon Samuel driver? Sam McMurdy. They were there at the wagons where Lee was murdering people. And they actually saw him kill people and they said as much. So that's the major difference. So there were other witnesses who, um, again, testified in the first trial. They just hadn't seen Lee personally kill anyone. So that's the major difference. Does okay. that kind of clarify that question? So... I mean, once again, and maybe it's just me, it just, it seems hard to me that they did this trial for purely political reasons and they really didn't want to convict Lee. Mm -hmm. I mean, to not, to not have an eyewitness that said, Hey, I saw John D. Lee kill yep. somebody. Mm -hmm. Seems yeah, like again, gross incompetence it, on the, on the it, federal government. Absolutely. Part. Absolutely. And again, it was intended that way for these political reasons. So Brigham Young had been saying since 1859, I will help bring in witnesses if you just use use my help. But um, Baskin and others said, we will not rely on the church or Brigham Young for help on this. Now, when Sumner Howard comes in for the second trial, again, as Rick mentioned, he doesn't have a political dog a dog in this fight. He doesn't care. He's coming from Michigan. He's not looking to disenfranchise Mormons. He just wants to come in, prosecute, get some convictions. He accepts help from Brigham Young church leaders who bring in witnesses who saw what happened and they go to trial and they testify. So, so can we, is it, is it fair to say that the government was just in, incompetent on the first trial? I, I mean, even if it was purposeful incompetence, I guess? It's intentional. They're, they're deliberately they're smart with what they were doing. They're deliberately trying to throw the first trial, but it's also true that they did go out and try to find witnesses, but they were very hard to find without help. <laughs> and so by ignoring Brigham Young's help, they weren't going to get them. They weren't going to. Hmm. Interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about the second trial. Um, because Barbara, once again, you know, we had that long conversation in New York. And it, it still boggles my mind that, because the second trial was only a week long. Is that right? 
Do you remember how many days the second trial was? I don't remember was? either, but it didn't take yeah. long. It's, it's short. It was shorter than the first trial. The first trial, as I remember, was two weeks. The second trial was one week, and Lee, Lee's didn't offer defense. But, yeah, they basically didn't offer defense because Bishop just assumed that as with the first trial, the second would end with a hung jury, and then his, his uh, client would walk. He really didn't put in a lot of work. If you read his correspondence, he doesn't get paid for the first trial. He wants no, he money doesn't. from Lee, and so he's not going to put in a lot of effort because he's not getting paid for it. Yeah. So he just shows up thinking, well, I know how this is going to end. It's going to end just like the first trial. There'll be a mixed jury, and this mixed jury will vote um, in a mixed way, and it'll hang up, and then my client will walk, and it's doubtful that the government will have the stomach to do a third one. That was his strategy. Right. And this is why William Bishop comes to hate William Bishop, Lee's defense attorney, comes to hate Brigham Young because he shows up, William Bishop shows up for the trial, and then he finds out that Brigham Young has helped by bringing witnesses to court to testify against the defendant, who is John D. Lee. And so he's furious about it. He loses the case. I'm sure he's probably embarrassed by losing that case. And so he just determines to get even and, and also make some money while doing it. So he writes Mormonism Unveiled, which goes through 19 printings, so apparently he did do pretty well with it. And throughout that book, he's just condemning Brigham Young left and right. So, yeah, just again, just political machinations throughout <laughs> both trials. It's just And this is mind boggling. mind-boggling to me because he's supposed to be Lee's defense attorney. Yeah. But mm -hmm. then he's like, oh, it was all Brigham. It's all Brigham. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, I mean, that's that's— Brigham made me do it. Yeah, Brigham made me do it because that has lasted for a century. Well, another another rumor, another myth that's lasted for a century, and it starts with Lee. Lee claims that the jury was rigged, that somehow or another church leaders had marked who the jurors would be. So we look at that accusation very carefully in the book, and we would refer people to the book to look at the evidence. But in, in a short soundbite, basically what happens is both sides look at jurors, which is perfectly legal to do. Both sides evaluate it. There is no jury tampering. And how do we know there's no jury tampering? For a couple of reasons. One, before he publishes Mormonism, uh, Mormonism Unveiled and repeats Lee's accusations of jury tampering, the defense attorney, William Bishop, says, Sumner Howard beat me fair and square. He doesn't say there was jury tampering. And more importantly, he appeals, they appeal the case to the Utah Supreme Court, and that would be the place where you would bring in jury tampering. William Bishop lists a lot of reasons why he thinks that John D. Lee's conviction should be overturned. Nothing at all is said about jury tampering. Hmm. So we know that that rumor is not true, but it's been perpetuated now. Yeah, Lee writes that in a letter to his one of his wives who are still faithful to him, and he's trying to explain why he was convicted for this crime when he's been telling his wives he's innocent. And then so, the, so Lee is the source of that. Yeah, he's in a letter to one of his wives. He says yeah. there were some stars put next to certain names on the jury list. Well, that wouldn't be unusual for either side to sort of mark the ones that they want to have on their side. But the story grows through the Lee family. One Lee family member in the 20th century repeats a story that gets published in a university press publication that says that they pinned stars in their under their arms so that you could tell who should be picked for the jury. If there was a conspiracy to tamper with the jury, surely there had to be a better way of doing it than <laughs> having these guys flashing their armpits to say, pick me, pick me. That just doesn't make any sense at all. And that's why we went back and looked at the original documentation and the place where jury tampering should be brought as an accusation, if they really believe it, 
should have been the appeal to the Utah Supreme Court. Not a word about that. Hmm. That's really interesting. I know, you know, I always like to to get the other side and Will Bagley's passed away. <laughs> I'm curious what you both think. What would Will Bagley say about this book? Because Will was definitely one who, I mean, on my interview, he said nothing happened in Utah without Brigham Young's approval. Of course, Brigham Young okayed the massacre and was part of the conspiracy uh, afterwards. I always kind of chuckle when I hear, you know, you'll hear people say that often, just break nothing happened and throughout the entire huge territory without Brigham Young knowing about it. And I, I always chuckle because I'm like, these are the same people that are sure that Brigham Young wasn't a prophet, seer, and revelator. So for him to know everything that's going on in Utah territory, he would need to be a prophet, seer, and revelator. So, you know, which which is it? But um, it's just, I, I, I don't know how anyone can make an argument that a governor of a territory and a president of the church would know everything that ever happened in the entire territory. That's a, it's a false argument in my opinion. So Will's, Will's argument is that um, religious fanaticism uh, led Brigham Young and Latter-day Saints to commit the massacre. And that's, we don't agree with that thesis. That's not what our research found. In fact, our research really debunked that quite a bit. So. And, you know, the, I would encourage people to read both accounts and compare the sources. Yeah. We were distinctly advantaged by having an enormous number of sources. We had what Legene transcribed, for example, from an otherwise, for most people, unreadable Pittman shorthand and Mormon alphabet. And when, once we had all that material together, we could see exactly what was happening that other people before us couldn't see. Now, gratefully, that information is now all published and anybody can look at it, including any historian who wants to take you know issue with us on what we're saying go back and look at the evidence to us it's all about the evidence we started this project saying we're going to let the chips fall where they may whatever that happens to be and that's what we did we let the chips fall where they're supposed to fall which is right where the evidence is not where myth is not where stories are that get passed from generation to generation and not where supposition is and a lot of the conclusions that have been drawn about Mount Meadows in the past have been based on supposition, not evidence. We say, look at the evidence. Yeah. And I would just add to that. I mean, I, I don't care if people if people want to believe that Brigham Young ordered it. That's fine. I don't care. <laughs> um, I, we just would encourage people to, to read the book, read the evidence, read the uh, sources that we cite, and see why we come to the conclusions that we do. But it doesn't matter to me if, if people want to continue to believe that, if that's important to them to believe, that's fine. But if you want to learn more, we encourage you to read our book. And we did discover in the process of doing the research for our book that many of the most controversial parts of the story, the ones that have gotten the most attention over time, are based on mythology that's just been repeated over time. Barbara, you want to give some examples? Including of that? including in Juanita Brooks's massacre at Mount Meadows. Oh. Or excuse me, the Mount Meadows, the Mount Meadows massacre. Juanita Brooks. So what did she yeah, get? Yeah, so Juanita was more of a folklorist than a trained historian. Mm -hmm. Um so and I don't want to sound like I'm disparaging her. Juanita Brooks is my hero. I admire her in so many ways. We dedicate our book to Juanita Brooks because of her courage in writing the first scholarly book about the massacre. And we end our book 
talking about Juanita Brooks. So, um, but looking at some of her, uh, some of the things that she wrote about in footnotes that have become legend, some folklore, some family legends she recorded uh, have become legend now. And our book and also a recent article by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich have debunked uh, two of those things that she included as folklore. Do you want me to talk about them? I do. <laughs> Don't leave us on the edge there. <laughs> okay, so uh, one of the things is there is a woman named Olive Coombs uh, who is murdered by a man named George Wood in Cedar City in 1863. It's been a while since I wrote that chapter. <laughs> but anyway, in the 1860s, she is murdered by a man named George Wood, uh, she and her daughter. And we found out, well, Laurel found out that the woman who was a descendant of Olive and her daughter told Juanita Brooks and turns out was a relative by marriage to Juanita Brooks oh. that her ancestor was this cute, sweet little school teacher in Cedar City who was investigating the massacre and therefore she was murdered Okay, to cover that up. So Laurel Ulrich, while she was working on Houseful of Females, she came across a journal by a woman named Carolyn Crosby who wrote about Olive Coombs, who knew her in California years before she came to Cedar City. And Laurel was saying, that story in Wendy's, Wendy's book is not lining up with the primary sources I'm finding. I said, well, tell me about it. And she said that Olive Coombs was an alcoholic. She struggled with alcoholism and wasn't able to care for her own children and um, was really just a woman who struggled. And she was not a school teacher. And she was living in poverty. And um, she found evidence. And she asked me to help research some of it in the Utah um, State Historical Society archives. And then we have this in our book as well. But she was living in Cedar City and she was accused of running a brothel. Um, and And her daughter had seduced the son of George Wood. So whether that was true or not, I don't know, but that's what she is accused of. And George Wood admits the day after he murders her and thinks he has murdered her daughter, that he kills her for those reasons. And that's why those murders took place, which had nothing to do with Mountain Meadows. Incidentally, coincidentally, George Wood is um, excommunicated in 1871, along with John D. Lee and Isaac Haight for great wickedness. And so we believe that was the reason. So that's... Well, that's what tied him to Mountain Meadows. Well, that's what tied him to being excommunicated. And it's probably because he murdered Alakums and almost murdered her daughter. So that's one of the folklore uh, footnotes in Juanita's Massacre, or Mountain Meadows Massacre that we debunk. The other one is that... uh, she recorded that her father and her uncles used to say that their father, Dudley Levitt, was at the Mountain Meadows in 1861 when Brigham Young visited the site. He and his uh, traveling party were traveling through the Mountain Meadows. They were traveling through all of southern Utah, and they stopped to water their horses at a spring in the Mountain Meadows and observed the monument that had been made there by James Henry Carlton in 1859. And across the bar of that cross, the army in 1859 had written, Vengeance is mine, that's where we get our book's title, had written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, saith the Lord. 
Wilfred Ridriff records that when Brigham Young looked up and saw that, he said, it should say, vengeance is mine and I have taken a little. Uh, two other people who were there record, you know, visiting that. None of those primary sources say anything about the monument being torn down or anything about Brigham Young telling anyone to tear down the monument. It just says that he makes that comment, they get back in their carriages, and they keep going. And one of those primary sources was George Watt, who was writing it as a disaffected anti-Mormon at the time. So if he wanted to say that Brigham Young ordered it, he would have, but he just, he just says that they visited it. Yeah. Um, and then perhaps most telling was I found an account by a non-Mormon mail carrier named Edwin Purple, who passes through the Mountain Meadows after Young and his party have visited there, and he describes the monument. He describes seeing it. And then he publishes his account very shortly thereafter in a non-Mormon newspaper. And that's where I found this, that it shows it was not torn down at that time. Now, it is torn down later, uh, most likely by Latter-day Saint perpetrators of the crime. But Brigham Young, there's no evidence that he orders it or that he um, says, tear it down right now. So that story comes from 1950 published Mountain Meadows Massacre by Juanita Brooks, in which she records that family folklore. But that has become legend. But again, yeah. looking at the primary sources, they just don't support that that's what happened. Do you have anything to add on that? Well, then, and then, of course, that affects the interpretation of what does Brigham Young mean when he says, it should say, vengeance is mine and I've taken a little. Oh, oh sure. Um, so what does he mean? We don't know. We can't read his mind, of course. But he has been told by John D. Lee and others that the people that were massacred at Mount Meadows were really bad people. He's lied to about them. He's told that they were in the mobs in Missouri and Illinois. He's told that they poisoned Indians and Latter-day Saints as they were passing through the territory. And so he may have interpreted that, Brigham Young, as, oh, well, the Lord took vengeance on these people who killed people. So, um, of course, others, I, I think, will badly so interpret it as, as said, meaning. We, we do think that he said, vengeance is mine and I have taken it. We know he, he said, said that, that because okay. Wilfred Woodruff recorded that part in his journal. But he just, just didn't say that he, the monument, that's not, nothing about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, the tearing down the monument, when combined with that, makes it look like the person who's taken a little vengeance is Brigham Young. The way it's sometimes told is, and again, this is following the Juanita, Juanita Brooks. Brooks family folklore that's passed down what uh 100 eight, years later <laughs> yeah 70 years later whatever the the way the story is told is that Brigham Young looks at the monument and raises his hand to the square and says vengeance is mine and i have taken a level you know and then they tore down the monument whereas it may well have been as we believe that Brigham Young looked at it it's a scripture from Romans and sees vengeance is mine and i will repay saith the lord and Brigham Young based on what he's been told looks at it and goes should say, vengeance is mine, and I, meaning the Lord, have taken a little. There's a big difference in those interpretations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I, I, mean, I remember Will was very emphatic about, yeah, he raised his arm to the square and the monument was torn yeah. down right there. So, so I wrote, I did it before this went into our book. I did a paper on this for the Mormon History Association when we were in St. George years ago, and I dug deep into this. And the first recorded evidence of this story is Juanita Brooks writing it in a footnote in her 1950 book. There is no evidence before that oh, that wow. says that Brigham Young ordered it destroyed and it was torn down. 
So that's, again, that's 1950. It's a late source, and it's something she heard from her father and uncles who said they heard it from their father, Dudley Levitt, who was a perpetrator of the crime. So, and then again, I dug in and found all of these primary sources of eyewitnesses who were there. They wrote what they saw early on, and it's just, they all, none of them say that he ordered it torn down. So the point is that many of the most controversial folklore. stories about the Mount Meadows Massacre and actually folklore. go back to being just folklore. And, and myths. And again, we hope that our book debunks all kinds of them, whether it makes uh, Latter-day Saints or Brigham Young look better or whether it makes them look worse. It, it, our book does both. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Rick Paterley and Barbara Jones-Brown. In our next conversation, we're going to tackle the big topic of blood atonement. What role did that play in the massacre? With blood atonement, there's a misunderstanding of, of that doctrine. And if you look closely at it, someone had to offer themselves to be blood atoned if they knew they had committed one of these very serious sins. And that was the case with Ram, Rasmus and Anderson. Again, that's in uh, chapter two or three. People okay. can read about that. So that could so. not be the basis for the Mount Meadows Massacre. If you'd like to hear the entire interview uncut, subscribe on either Patreon or at GospelTangents.com. For just $5 a month, you can hear the entire audio uninterrupted. On our $10 tier, if you'd like to see the whole video, you can see that uh, either on YouTube.com slash GospelTangents, or I've got a special Facebook group devoted for uh, full videos. So subscribe at GospelTangents.com and uh, sign up for just $10 a month. For $20 a month, if you'd like to get some bonus content, uh, maybe some of the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, you can sign up for that. And then if you'd like to talk to me for $100 a month, we'll, we'll do a monthly phone call on something like Zoom, and you can ask me anything you want. So thanks again. Also, don't forget about the merch, mugs, t-shirts, um, hats, things like that. I'm trying to get the ties up there. Hopefully I can get up, up there. And uh, thanks again for watching Gospel Tangents. And click here for some more videos.